it's so easy to feel insignificant when we look at our telescopes and realize how small we are. When we study history and realize that no matter how many times, how much we go to the gym and eat vitamins, living 100 years is just the spark, 13.8 billion years of cosmic history. But when you think about it the way you said it, that actually we, what we do here in our lifetime could change the entire future of life in the cosmos. What's so insignificant about that? There was a time when robots were so primitive, they could only navigate on wheels. Now not only do some have the ability to walk, but they can even do backflips like the Atlas robot by Boston Dynamics. That's not all though. AI has become so advanced that it can already teach languages. An example is Botter, one of the Wise Accelerator cohorts. AI can pick out the ripest raspberries in your supermarket by utilizing tactile sensors. Or it can even generate deepfake videos of world leaders reciting all sorts of controversial statements. Such circumstances begs the question, should we embrace AI as a solution to solve problems in our world? Can we depend on it to enhance our education? Well, it doesn't just go in one direction. Instead, we should be thinking about how human beings and AI can work together to become better. How can human beings learn to effectively use AI to their advantage. Welcome back to Wise Words, the show where we talk to the world's leading minds in education and beyond. AI for education and education for AI. I'm echoing the thoughts of this episode's featured guests, Mia and Max Tegmark, two of the co-founders of the Future of Life Institute. There, they and many others have been contributing to our understanding of some of tomorrow's most powerful technologies, and most importantly, ensuring that they are beneficial to humanity. They'll tell you more about what they do right after this. Once again, do let us know your feedback after listening. You can tweet to at wise underscore tweets or to wise underscore CEO. We love to hear your thoughts, so don't hesitate to reach out. Let's get to the show. Okay, I'm here with Maya and Max Tegmark. Welcome both to uh, Wise Words. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You're, you're the founders of the Future of Life Institute, amongst a number of other uh, accolades and, and achievements. Uh, tell me a little bit about, or tell our listeners a little bit about the background to the Future of Life Institute and what kind of work it does. The Future of Life Institute was was born in our living room, actually, in 2014, when uh, Max had a gap, finally, from a lot of other commitments that he had. And he was like, on New Year's Eve, he was like, I- I've been complaining about the world so much. I need to do something about this. I'm not allowed to complain anymore. I need to take action. So it was it was the two of us, and then we convinced our other three co-founders to to join us in this, um, you know, what has turned out to be a wonderful uh, experience, and um, also you know create this, this fantastic community around us. Uh, so the Future of Life Institute is a nonprofit focused on beneficial uses of artificial intelligence uh, and technology more broadly. We've focused a lot on artificial intelligence, but we also touch on things like nuclear technology, biotechnology, um, technology related to climate change, and, and so on. And uh, our, I guess we'd start from the premise that 
you know, technology is giving us incredible power, um, power to flourish like never before, but also to self-destruct and that we should uh, be mindful of that and really analyze and introspect about our relationship with technology and what, what we want to do with it. Um, I don't know if I'm doing it justice, Max, maybe you can. <laughs> yes, may I summarize it very well. Technology is um, transforming us from this hapless species in the Stone Age with 30-year life expectancy that we couldn't really impact our destiny very much, right? And empowering us to um, do either really wonderful things or, or really horrible things. And we feel very strongly that uh, we can have a really inspiring future if we win what I like to call the wisdom race, the race between the growing power of the technology and the wisdom with which we manage it. Yeah. And the challenge, the way we see it, is that winning this wisdom race is going to require a strategy change because we used to have the strategy always of just learning from mistakes to make sure the wisdom kept pace. First, we invented fire, yeah. screwed up a bunch of times, then invented the fire extinguisher. Yeah. First, we invented the car. And then a lot of traffic accidents later, we invented the seatbelt, the traffic light, the airbag, and all of that. And the thing's more or less worked out. But the thing is, science keeps getting ever more powerful. So technology gets ever more powerful. And at some point, the power crosses this threshold where learning from mistakes ceases to be a, a good strategy. If we were to, for example, have an accidental nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia in five minutes and then 35 minutes from now, you know, thousands of mushroom clouds later, we look at, we were like, oopsie, that was a bit sloppy. Let's just learn from that mistake. It doesn't really feel like the best strategy, does it? Yeah. For really powerful tech, it's, it's better to uh, be more proactive than reactive, plan ahead and try to get things right the first time. And this is exactly what we focus on with the Future Life Institute. Think through things that could go wrong, to make sure that they go right. And, and it's also, I mean, it's not just that the, the power of the technology is uh, growing exponentially. It's also the speed at which it changes and develops, which begs the question, even if we wanted to slow things down and think ahead and plan ahead, do we have the time even to do that? What, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, there are two separate good points you make. The speed is very much accelerating. And when you know that you're going to face some very crucial decisions and have almost no time to make them, you have a, it's a smart strategy to think through in advance how you're going to deal with this. And do we have the ability to press pause on technology? No. Broadly speaking, No. It is sometimes possible to stop some technologies. For example, biology is really our poster child here, where scientists around the world thought through very carefully 50 years ago where they wanted to draw the line between acceptable uses for medicines and curing diseases versus bioweapons, where they managed to get an international ban. And that ban has been so successful that we basically never hear about bioterrorism and biowarfare today. And we think of the biotech industry as a force for good. Right? So this gives us, this gives us hope. And, th and this is something we very much have, are trying to emulate now with artificial intelligence by bringing together leading AI researchers from around the world to think about where they want to draw the line and what things we want to stigmatize and not have done to be able to get all the upside. One unique feature of the Future of Life Institute, I think, compared to other organizations that are focused on, um, you know, 
ethical implications of how we use technology is that we very purposefully take a very long-term perspective. And I think that that comes a little bit from, um, partly from, from, I guess, inspired by, by Max's work in his, in his research, um, you know, as an astrophysicist, he's been thinking, you know, not in terms of 10 years or 20 years, but you, you've been, you've been doing research at scales of of billions of years. Exactly. Um, so I think that that one of the things that that differentiates us is is this this very long term vision. Um, I come from from the field of psychology, and I know for a fact that you know people are very 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 poor at estimating um, you know timescales that are not you know evolutionarily useful for us. Like you know thinking about what will happen. 10,000 years from now, it's not useful. It's not going to help us survive or, or flourish or, or do better right now. Um, and there's actually some v- fascinating research that just came out, one, one article about um, people's estimations of, of risks and also people's estimations of, um, or like pe- people's investment in preserving the future and so on. And well, the conclusion is we're really bad at it, yeah. uh, but we should be better at it. We should strive to become better better at it because i mean i I really like you know something that you max always say and that it it seems like we're at the crucial point in in history where we have such a fantastic influence on on how the future will come to unfold and uh you know we we better we better do it right you say it much better than i do no no, i i think i agree exactly what you said i feel we have a moral imperative to get this right and after 13.8 billion years our universe has woken up to the point that we have these self-aware beings on this planet and we have within our power to actually self-destruct or to get our act together and help life flourish, you know, for billions of years. And uh, if there's ever a time to <laughs> deploy our, our moral uh, values to make the right choice, this is it. And and I think Maya made a very good point also about how psychology research shows that we tend to be very bad at handling these kind of abstract things. For example, if I ask you, Compare scenario A and B, where scenario A is we have a disaster that kills 99% of all people. Scenario B is we kill 100% of all people on Earth. How much worse is scenario B? Is it 1% worse? No, it's infinitely worse. Exactly, because suddenly we've lost out on billions of years of all these future generations, right? You know, by what weird morality should we not care about them? You know, so that's why we have the name of the Future Life Institute, because we would like the future life to exist. We don't feel that that should be a very controversial partisan thing, you know, left versus right, Arabic versus Chinese versus anything else. No, this is clearly something everybody in the world should be able to should get be behind. Concerned about, yeah. And uh, in that perspective, it matters less who wins the next election in the U.S. or if this country or that country becomes gets the, the way next they want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In the longer perspective, either we all win or we all lose. Exactly. Exactly. And what, what, well, what I love about uh, your work is, well, a couple of things. One, I, I love this kind of long, you know, really sort of macro, uh, almost, I don't even want to say geological perspective, sort of almost a universal perspective um, that you take. The second thing that I love about it is, and, and I want to reference your book, Life 3.0, which, which I found very, uh, very interesting and inspiring. I love the way you used speculative fiction. Essentially, you used your imagination to sort of paint a couple of scenarios 
to tell a story around what could happen with artificial intelligence. Um, and that goes to, to, to sort of Maya's argument about the psychology of human beings. I totally buy the fact that we're, we're really bad at assessing risk and even thinking long term, except we have this innate ability to imagine and imagine futures, uh, for ourselves and, 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 you know, and our distant, uh, descendants. And, and what I like about what you, what you, you're trying to do is actually is to harness that imagination and ask questions around what what's the range of possible worlds that we could create using these technologies um and then hopefully nudge us towards the ones that are the more desirable i mean we're really bad but we're also the best organisms to do that <laughs> that we know of so this is the the paradox of the human condition you know on we're very dumb in an absolute sense perhaps but we're sort of just barely smart enough to uh, start building machines that are smarter than us. So we're exactly at that level now where we have the potential to totally alter the destiny of, of life in the future. This is why we're in, this is such a special time in the history of the cosmos. But it is really, so I think we, we, uh, we do have this capacity to really imagine, imagine futures that, uh, you know, are, are quite different from anything that we see around us. But, um, one challenge actually, when, when Max was, was frameworking the, the chapter, um, for example, uh, where he describes, in the book, where he describes these possible futures, um, one thing that was very difficult, even for us, you know, thinking about this is, well, what would be a good future? It, it was so easy to fall into all these dystopian futures. And I think that, you know, Max likes to say that we really need a, a good, positive vision for the future that we can all, you know, rally behind and and work towards. Um, because without it, um, you know, if it's always about mitigating risks and it's always about avoiding dystopia, I think that that's not not sufficient. So um, that's another, you know, we think a lot about like, existential risk, as Max was saying, what if, you know, some catastrophic thing happened and, you know, destroyed, you know, the entire species. But we should also think about where do we want to go? We have so much space at our disposal. We have we have so many resources that are out there. How can we how can we use all of those to create something that is inspiring and good for everyone? Yeah, this is a very important psychological lesson. I think I often get students coming into my office for career advice, and I always ask them, you know, where do you want to be in the future? And if all she can say is, oh, maybe I'll get murdered. Maybe I'll get run over by a bus. You know, a terrible strategy for career planning, right? Clearly. Someone who may just spends their whole time making lists of all, all the bad things that can happen will become a paranoid hypochondriac and not very productive member of society. Yet, as a species, we do exactly that. We go, go to one sci-fi movie after the other and see yet one dystopia and vision after the other. We read the newspapers and just think about all the things that can go wrong. But it's exactly the opposite. It's positive shared visions which foster collaboration among people. And I, I think it's actually quite inspiring the fact that we're having this interview in Qatar. If you rewind a little bit, this was desert. There's very little life here. Uh, the universe out there, when we look in our telescopes, is a desert right now with, very, with basically no sign of life. Yet there was a positive vision here that what if we take these atoms in Qatar and just rearrange them? We take some of the 
hydrocarbons underground and take them up and then this and then we desalinate some water and and da da and now there are three million people here and beautiful greenery and so on right and that came from a positive vision in human intelligence basically rearrange this from desert to something very vibrant and alive and our vision is that one day in the distant future much of our cosmos can come alive in the same way life can go from being a distant almost negligible perturbation on a dead universe to, to a universe which is very fundamentally woken up. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's, it's incredibly uplifting and awe-inspiring even to think that maybe we, you know, we're the species that that's, lights the, the spark. Yes, exactly. And, and when we educate, we really want to empower the children and feel that they can make a difference, right? And what you just said there is exactly that kind of, inspiration for for humanity itself. It's so easy to feel insignificant when we look at our telescopes and realize how small we are, when we study history and realize that no matter how many times, how much we go to the gym and eat vitamins, living a hundred years is just the spark out of 13.8 billion years of cosmic history. But when you think about it the way you said it, that actually we, what we do here in our lifetime could change the entire future of life in the cosmos. What's so insignificant about that? Not at all. This might yeah, be the yeah, most nothing, important nothing, decision nothing at all, right? in, in cosmic history that we get to be part of. Yeah. And I find that very motivating. No, I mean, it's the same here. I mean, I was, I was reflecting a little bit, you know, on the, on the theme of the summit, what it means to be, to be human. And, and then I took, I took exactly that, that sort of cosmic perspective. And I said, okay, you know, say 14 billion, uh, almost 14 billion years. Uh, is the age of the universe. Okay. If you, if you, you know, scale that down to about a year, right. Then, then human civilization fits into what? Maybe 10, 10 seconds, right? Thereabouts 5,000 years out of 14 million. You're better at math than I am. Right? Think here. So we take 10 to 17 seconds, 10. All right. Say 20 seconds. Right? Okay. <laughs> anyway, it's seconds, right? <laughs> Um, and then, you know, again, it's easy to, it's easy to look at that and just feel like human civilization is nothing, right? It's, it's, you know, it's 10 or 20 seconds in a year. But then if you flip that around and say, okay, what's happened in those, in those 10, 20 seconds? You know, we've gone from animals essentially afraid of their own shadow to beings that have understood where they, they come from. They've understood their cosmos. There's still a lot to learn, of course, right? They've understood their cosmos and they've understood where they come from. You know, they're on the, on the point now on the cusp where they can really maybe begin to make, make a difference on this universe. That's pretty remarkable for again, 10 or 20 seconds. What are we going to do when we get a whole minute, you know, or an hour in this, in this kind of time scale? That to me is also incredibly uplifting and inspiring. It's, it's utterly remarkable what's been happening. And, and we humans have walked the earth for over a hundred thousand years now, but just look what, what's happened in the last hundred years. Yeah. That's but, even, yeah, even <laughs> what's yeah. happened in the last, yeah. I was saying like a 5,000 year lifetime, civilization. In our lifetime, right? Yeah. How it's accelerating. Yeah. And, and you've, um, you've assembled actually quite an intriguing group of, of, of people uh, that that forms part of the conference that you you put together. I mean, you're not just it's not just AI folks that you bring to the table. I mean, it's not just scientists, but you have philosophers there, you have business leaders. Tell me a little bit about the sort of interdisciplinary dimension to this 
and why that's important. I'll start with a, a little bit of a, of a personal anecdote. So when I, it was Max and I first, and then uh, we we started to expand our, you know, the group of founders. Um, so we reached out to Jan Tallinn, who, um, you know, is one of the founders of Skype. And uh, then we reached out to Victoria Krakowna, who used to be a, a student working in uh, in machine learning at that point in time. And I was the only one who was felt a little bit like an outsider. I was coming from the social sciences and, you know, all these people with tech. And Anthony Aguirre, who's also a, a physicist like Max. So I felt, wow, you know, what, what do I have to contribute? And it was a little bit of a struggle at the beginning trying to um, find m- my voice and what was what was important, but I, I think the interdisciplinarity is 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 crucial for this topic. It's it's a topic with very broad appeal, um, and it's also a topic that really needs different perspectives. You know, we, we talk a lot about ethics, just as an example. Um, Nick Boostrom, one of our friends and, and a philosopher who's written a lot about this topic. You know, he likes to say that, you know, now we have philosophy with a deadline, right? We cannot just sit around and think about, well, what values should we choose to embed in these systems and have another thousand years to think about it? But really, you know, we we see now more and more that aspects of different disciplines are coming together in this very meaningful and very impactful way on, on society. Um, and there is a lot that... Uh, that a lot of people can can contribute, and it's it's also been you know just really fascinating to see over the years, um, you know how how fruitful uh, this this topic has become, and and how there's there's this fantastic thirst for uh, thinking and introspecting and, and understanding technology because I think we all recognize that it really is impacting the way we live and the way we will live in the future. And um, it's so important that we have people from social science and other areas coming into this conversation because frankly, just because someone is good at training a neural network you know, does not mean they're an expert on human happiness. Yeah. And uh, we don't want these crucial decisions about the human the future of all humans to be made by some nerds in some back room who've had too much Red Bull to drink. That, that's a frightening thought, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. Yeah, we were at the conference. I think that for me, the 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 time, the one moment when it really, really clicked that it really is that, that the social sciences can contribute tremendously was uh, we were at a conference and and Daniel Kahneman stands up, you know, who's a Nobel Prize yeah. winner in economics and also a f- very famous psychologist, and he he stands up there. And everybody was talking about oh, AI can do this and AI can do that, and he stands up, raises his hand, um, and he's like asks one question, will this make us happier? And the room goes completely <laughs> silent. <laughs> Nobody had thought about that question. And it was the whole, you know, that's the whole point, right? Like, why do we want these uh, these technologies? Hopefully we want them to increase well-being and increase our happiness and make it better for everyone. <laughs> and sure enough, not to be gloomy or anything, but look at some basic statistics. In the United States, in the last few years... Technology keeps getting better and better, but the suicide rate kept going up. And the life expectancy in the United States, life expectancy has gone down three years in a yeah, row. No, that's, that is, that is a, because of opioid epidemic, obesity epidemic and so on. It, it, 
this does, is not the sort of thing that makes you feel that everybody's getting happier in the U.S. Yeah. No, absolutely, and 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 clearly, I mean, the, we we know also that you know rates of depression and and you know and and other sort of uh, negative externalities are 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 on the increase, and and I think there's some evidence that it it may well be that digital technologies and the ubiquity of our digital lives now may have you know may be playing playing a part in uh, in all of that yeah unfortunately we're you know we're, we're we're fantastic beings you know as humans but we also have an extremely hackable psyche so you know um i think we have to be very careful about how we use technology and how how much we let it hack us. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And that's why I think it's, it's crucial that, that people like you may are very much in that, you know, in that discussion and others like you. And, and I hope educators as well, which, which uh, sort of brings me now to you're both educators amongst other things. What are your thoughts about, about AI and education? I think there are fascinating connections between AI and education that we can separate into Two parts, AI for education. How can we use AI to actually make education better on one hand? And on the other hand, education for AI. How do we want to educate people to be able to flourish in an increasingly AI-dominated world? So maybe we can start with the first one. Yeah, no, let's, let's do AI that. to make education better. There are many lines of research uh, right now that are that are definitely very promising. Some of them are are I think wonderful and very inspirational. Uh, things like personalizing education, uh, providing uh, equal opportunities uh, for people with learning disabilities, for example. And then there are other ones which are a bit more questionable in terms of really infringements on, on privacy and uh, manipulations of attention to degrees that, uh, you know, I would, I would find uh, uncomfortable. But uh, I think that there's great potential overall. It, you know, if we do it right, we can, we can really, really uh, leverage this wonderful power of, of data and technology to help us, you know, be better, learn better, um, understand more. And I think that's, that's really wonderful. We uh, are putting a lot of energy at MIT into education research to see how we can really help our students better and um, there's, yeah, as Mia said, so much room for improvement. It feels so terrible sometimes when I'm lecturing in front of a class of a hundred students to know that whatever level I lecture at, I'm going to be boring some while going too fast for some others who don't have the right background. And if we can use, if we can supplement this with something much more customized, it can be way, way, way better. There, there was a recent study that showed that uh, when instead have an assessment done by a computer system, people are the most engaged. The students, if, if they get questions of a difficulty where they get about 70% yeah. right, if they get more than seven, like 90% right, they tune out, it's too easy, it's boring. And if it's much less than that, again... Can't be done, it's too hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, and a second area where... We put a lot of effort at MIT into just making education more accessible. So we were the first major Western university to take all our best courses and give them away for free through the Open Courseware project. Yep. Yeah, I'm aware over of that. a decade ago. Yeah. And so it was very natural for us to follow on with making MOOCs out of these courses now more recently. And uh, it makes me so happy sometimes when I meet a student from Bangladesh or somewhere far away who tells me that. This really helped them. I mean, it's amazing yeah. to be able to be taught by the best of the best, right? And it makes a huge difference uh, to have access to that kind of information. What What about AI uh, education for AI? 
Yeah. First, just there's some more concerns, though, about uh, AI for education. Also, I think we more broadly in society, we'll come back to that. There are all these great uses and not great uses. And even within education, I think we have to watch out. There's a system that's been used fair bit recently in the U.S. for grading English essays with AI systems. And then when you, but when you look at how that works, it's a black box. Nobody really knows exactly. And, and sometimes <laughs> it gives advice to the students, which I think is too robotic and actually not good. Exactly. Um, Could end then, up killing creativity. Yeah. Right? It's and, a little bit, I mean, not, not to sort of pick on the companies, but it's also a little bit like the, uh, the, the sort of grammar uh, recommendations coming, you know, out of Microsoft Word sometimes. You kind of think, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what I want to say. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, but. <you> know. <laughs> no, but no thanks. Yeah. And, and also um, having uh, surveillance systems that constantly monitor if the students are paying attention or not. You know, uh, it's worth really having a robust debate as to whether things like that, how much of that we, stuff we really want. And, and finally, the, there's this, always this trade-off. There are powerful forces who want to eliminate, replace as many teachers as possible by machines so they don't spend as much on education. And to what, to what extent do we want to do that as opposed to really enhancing the teachers instead of replacing them? And, and finally, even if we do have a system which is like incredibly efficient for educating using a lot of AI, do we want kids to only learn in that optimized way? Because then when they suddenly come out in the real world, Maybe they're going to find it hard to learn in a more natural situation where things aren't always served on a silver platter. Yeah, and also, I mean, it, it also, I mean, a part of the education, at least as far as I, you know, I, I understand it, part of a good education needs to involve socialization. And what you're sort of describing is atomized education. Maybe like uber personalized learning, yeah. you know, ends up becoming atomized, meaning it's, it's just you. It's you and the machine. Yeah. And that, that, that can't be good. So in my view, I think this is a perfect segue into what you just asked about now, more broadly, what's our society we're aspiring towards. We have to have a robust debate within education, actually good uses and not. And in society more broadly, it's clear that we're putting AI now in charge of ever more physical infrastructure and also the decisions that affect people's lives from who gets a loan to who gets probation from jail to any number of other things. And uh, we need to look at all the things you can do with AI and draw a clear red line between the good uses and what we, the ones we consider unacceptable. So when we educate, we have to totally let go of this old idea that we're educating our kids to live in the same kind of society we grew up in. A society where they're going to learn a career and then have it for 40 years. Ridiculous to think that the job market in 40 years is going to be anything like today. So what should we teach them instead? First of all, what careers should we educate them for so that they can even get a job and so that they can get a job that won't get automated away anytime soon? We uh, should clearly steer them towards jobs which involve creativity, many unpredictable elements, jobs where the consumer customer prefers working with a human and away from jobs that are very repetitive and predictable and lack human interactions, which are soon going to be automated. Um, but more broadly, we need to educate students also so that they understand the changing landscape of jobs so they can sort of make their own predictions about which things are going to get disrupted. And for what is, and so that for whatever career they go into, they will throughout their life keep paying attention to how AI is impacting it so they can be among the first in their field to adopt that technology to make them more efficient rather than being the last in their field to learn about this and be the ones who get outcompeted. Because humans working with AI are going to 
very efficiently outcompete humans working without AI. So that's that's one big um, category of things we absolutely have to bring into our education better. And a separate one is I feel to just educate people to become better citizens who are informed and, and have opinions about where we should draw that line between acceptable and unacceptable uses. So our students have to start thinking, do they want a society where AI causes increasing unemployment, increasing income inequality, or do they want a society where the growing wealth from automation helps everybody get better off? Do they want a society where AI is used to develop um, unprecedented uh, good killing machines and lethal autonomous weapons for anonymous assassinations, or do they want instead a society where that's banned, like bioweapons are banned, and AI is used to cure diseases and save lives? Do they want a society where AI is used increasingly for mass manipulation of people, or do they want a society where the AI is deployed more in service of people? These are all decisions which we need to really, really prepare our our students to think about so that they can weigh in. I think we also need to prepare people who actually understand the technology and monitor it and demand that certain kinds of technologies are are developed. So for example, you know, Max just gave a talk this, this, earlier today about uh, this idea, intelligible intelligence, right? We we really need to demand technologies that are transparent, uh, technologies that we, where we know what they are going to do. And I think we need to be better informed as, as users, um, like what the implications are of the technologies that, that we are using. Uh, we see now more and more, you know, problems um, arising from, you know, polarized opinions, uh, issues with the democratic system, if you let technology go go loose. Um, so I think, you know, people who understand technology and technology literacy should be should be crucial. And it's not really a priority. I mean, a lot of children don't even learn how to code. It's not all about the coding. I think it's it's more than that. You need a, a deeper understanding. But you know, it's it starts from there. I think that's that's another very very important thing. You know, having uh, having this ability to understand the technology uh, that you are using. And, and the other one is is also you know more on on the you know self awareness and knowledge about yourself. Uh, yes, I'm, it, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, yeah no, it's not on, sufficient to to yeah. just understand the technology that you're using, but also understand your own vulnerabilities. Uh, towards it, and I think you know we are not really prepared enough to be to be mindful users of technology. A lot of the research that is done uh, in terms of human machine interaction, you know, they, they stem from these very anxious types of questions, like what what is what is going to happen to us? And I think the reason why those questions are driving a lot of the research um, is because. You know, people have really struggle in their use of, of technology. And part of it is, is because they lack the understanding of themselves as well as the technology that they're using. No, I'm, sorry, I'm, really, I'm really glad you, you brought that up because there are two parts to the, to the relationship, right? There is the human, human dimension uh, to the human AI relationship. And just as we need to get better at understanding the, the technology, we absolutely need to get better at, much better at understanding ourselves. Absolutely. And technology can help us. It can be a, you know, right now it's mostly used as a vicious cycle, but it can be a virtuous cycle. So you can use technology to gather data about your own self. I, I am a little bit of a, you know, ex- 
the experiment nerd, so I, I would like to, and Max is as well, we like to collect data about ourselves and then try to get the macro perspective. But there's so many, there's so many companies that try to sell us things, that collect our data, collect data about us. Why not, you know, why not instead collect data about ourselves so that we can understand ourselves better? Yeah. So in a way, if you could use technology that is transparent with, transparent to you, with regards to who you are, you know, and teaches you more about who you are and what your vulnerabilities are. Um, I think that would be very beneficial and we should demand that, that we, we get those kinds of technologies so that, that people develop um, these kinds of technologies. So I completely agree with this. And cu- coming back again to the sort of skills we need to teach our kids and not. So often when I speak with, with political leaders, they're like, oh, we have to teach all our kids to code. I, I think that's not correct at all. I think we'll never... Right now, there's about 1% of the U.S. labor force engaged in anything remotely related to coding. It's never going to be more than that because once someone makes good software, it scales. What's much more important for everybody to learn is the, what the, how the technology actually acts. You know, you don't have to understand how a car works exactly in great detail, what's happening in the pistons and your internal combustion engine or whatever to be able to drive it. And to be able to also understand the risks involved with cars when they're, and how they should and shouldn't use a car. And I think in the same way, everybody needs to understand the basics of what AI can and cannot do at any one time. And so they can spot when someone else is using it against them and using it badly and have an informed opinion of, about how they think it should be used. That does not require coding. Uh, and you can also use a lot of the power of AI yourself in the system without needing to worry a lot about the details. We're in fact seeing, um, we've, we've seen that progression of this. It used to be, you know, when I had my very first computer, it didn't have a mouse. Yeah, that's it right. It didn't yeah, have yeah. any graphics <laughs> on it. I had to type all sorts of weird that's incantations right. and to, to make it do anything. Now everybody can make a computer work for them by just clicking and pointing and then their phone, and their phone is a much more powerful computer than I ever had when I was a kid, right? And we're going to see the same with AI systems, machine learning systems that they're going to be so easy user interfaces that we can all learn to use them without knowing much at all about coding. But we need to have this higher level knowledge of how can it be used? How can it be used by me to help me? How can it be used by others to harm me so that we can be good citizens? But on that on that note, uh, Maya, Max, thank you for your wise words. Thank you so much. Great. If I can, may sneak in just an extra yeah, please, 20 seconds. Please, please. We've talked about challenges and problems, but I... Th- I'd really What's like op- to end yeah. by reminding us again that we're not talking about something like nuclear war here where there's either nothing or a huge downside. We're talking about something which is going to be either the worst thing or the best thing ever. Why is it that we don't have a 30-year life expectancy anymore? Everything we love about civilization today is a product of human intelligence. So And, and technology. Which is, Work, but, which the, is a, but the technology byproduct. comes yes. from the human intelligence, precisely. And yet we often wish we had more intelligence. When a friend of ours gets cancer and we're told that it's incurable, we know that that's a lie. It's not incurable. The truth is, the painful truth is, we're not intelligent enough yet to figure out how to cure it. So wouldn't it be wonderful if we can actually figure out how to amplify our human intelligence or artificial intelligence and solve all of those problems that are stumping us today to help life flourish like never before. 